0: Welcome to the Abundant Life Church sermon of the week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I don't know that I've been turned loose in a while. Anybody who's very familiar with me, but uh, I do, I do want to feel that liberty, and I, I do here feel that liberty to be turned loose loosed from my will, loosed from what I want people to think I am or who I want people to think I am. I want to be loosed from every image. I want to be loosed from every stronghold. I want to be loosed to serve the Lord. I want to be loosed to fear. I, I, I want to I be loosed to Just be whatever I got to be and whatever we got to be as a group to get out of here different than what we came in, right? And that may not involve everybody. Everybody, There might be some folks that say, hey, I'm pretty good right where I'm at and I don't want to be bothered with change. But you know what? I've been around, I've been in ministry for over 20 years and I, I end up counseling a lot of people and there's way too much fear in the church. There's just way too, and I have been a part of that. I don't feel as much like that now as I was. But anxiety and stress, fear of the future, fear of loss, because we walk through life and we pick things up, whether it's identities, whether it's reputations, whether it's our image, whether it's um, relationships, you know, material, ministries, positions. And as God blesses us, as God blesses it was never his intention for us to fear losing those things, right. yeah. including the things that we cherish the most, like our families, right? It, do, it wouldn't make sense for God to give us things and bless us with things because, you know, blessings can become a cursing, right? Yeah. You know how I think that happens? When we fear losing them. When I fear losing, you know, like for example, you know, you said some nice things about me and, and, you know, here last time, whatever, and maybe there's some expectations. You know what? I could fear losing that expectation and disappointing you. Right? So God doesn't God put things in our lives so that we could fear losing them because it'll turn into a curse because he's not giving us a spirit of fear. I'm not talking about just being afraid like, oh, deer ran in the car, ha! Ah. That's not the kind of fear I'm talking about. I'm not talking about having a day that there's some things like one day. I'm talking about a season, a pattern of life, of fear. And there's way more people in the church that are living in fear, the fear of the things lost and the stuff that I'm talking about, than we want to admit. And we're not living the abundant life that God wants us to live because of that. None of that's in there, but um, what I meant to say was that my name is Randy Brown. (laughs) Somebody didn't give me a card. That was my problem. (laughs) From Lifeline Connect in Urbana, Illinois. And um, God has blessed me to be a co-founder and a, a director of a wonderful men's recovery program. Uh, It's a 12-month residential recovery program, and we get men from all over the United States that come there. And one of the opportunities and blessings that God has given me is to meet some of the most courageous men that I have ever met. Men that are courageous enough to say, hey, look, I need help, and I'm willing to put everything aside even the things that I'm afraid to put aside and go get help. Not worrying about what anybody else thinks, but I'm just going to go get help. And I watch men walk in that door afraid with walls up and God allows and open up their hearts and let God be able to sift through the wounds of life. You know, you want to talk about something scary? Why don't we just drag your dusty box up here and open it up and start sifting through it? Hello. (laughs) So courageous men that show up and allow God to work on them so they can be the men that God wants them to be. You know what, they have been a model and an example to me over the last 10 years that I have been very grateful for. And my life and our church has benefited from the courage that these men have shown. And I just want to, before I go any further, just thank God for that. Can we just thank God for the the men and the courage that are able to do that? Lord, we're thankful, God, for courageous men, God. We're thankful for help, Lord. We're thankful for hope that only you can give. And I, I brought, this guy right here is the biggest help to me. I can't tell you how much of a help Drew Cook is. And uh, he was with me here last year uh, when we came. And um, I, I want him to come and I want him to just give a part of his testimony um, about what God's done in
1: his life. Is that all right if he comes?
0: Okay. Microphone closed.
1: <laughs> Praise the Lord. Uh, my name is Drew Cook. I got to testify here last time. I'm going to be quick, but I just want to give God some glory for what he's done in my life. I was raised in a pastor's home uh, in South Carolina, just outside of Myrtle Beach. Had a great family, wonderful family that uh, raised me in truth, but they didn't teach me how to deal with emotions. Uh, They had a lot of hurts in their lives and they, they, they ran from their emotions and I learned to do the same thing. So later in life, uh, I found it very difficult to deal with emotions and deal with intimacy uh, and relationships with people. Um, I didn't get too heavy into drugs in high school. Where my drug issue came in was uh, after I was already married, had children, had a great job, and I got injured at work, uh, hurt my back real bad, and they put me on painkillers and realized that the painkillers did a really great job of helping me avoid intimacy and emotions and all the things that I I really had to work hard to run from. I didn't have to work hard anymore. It was as easy as just taking a pill. Uh, And very quickly became very addicted to the medication uh, to the point that I was injecting everything the doctor was giving me in a week's time. Uh, And then for three weeks, I would have to try and, and Get by on heroin and whatever kind of opiate I could get my hands on. It ruined my life. Uh, I was to the place where I had lost everything. I'd lost all of our possessions, everything my wife and myself had worked so hard for. I was about to lose her. Uh, I was about to lose my children. I was facing time in jail for manufacturing. I got in some trouble with uh, with a drug deal and uh, manufacturing conspiracy. And that's when I got in touch with Brother Brown and. Uh, God just opened up a lot of doors to allow me to be able to go to Lifeline Connect. One was PTI, it's called pretrial intervention, something we have in South Carolina uh, that allowed me to go for treatment. And upon completion, all of the charges were dropped, and I have no criminal record. Um, so, yeah, praise God. So uh, I came to Lifeline Connect, and I found the healing that I needed there. Um, I was able to get into a really safe place where a lot of the, a lot of the fear of opening up and, and being vulnerable uh, a lot of it subsided because I felt safe around these people and God was able to heal a lot of brokenness in me. It was a long process, it's a very hard process. Um, but now uh, God has brought my family back together. We live uh, in Illinois and we go to the church. I'm very involved in Lifeline Connect. I teach Genesis. Um, I I do Genesis groups in the church, and I uh, do one-on-one counseling with guys going through program. Uh, I have a great job with a great company that invests in the program, and uh, they actually have Brother Brown come out and and help try and straighten out trouble between all the guys at work. So, uh, you know, I'm just very blessed. I'm very fortunate to be alive, and I give all the glory to God. I've been, clean. I've been clean since uh, November of 2013. All right, that's good. Yes. Thank you, Jesus.
0: Thank you, Lord. And his family is a tremendous blessing to the church. His wife is the church secretary. He plays drums. He plays the guitar. Um, his children are very involved. They drive vans. Like I said, he's teaching classes and he's a, he's a uh, um, certified Genesis counselor. But man, that's just what God does, right? That's just what God, I didn't bring his before picture, but he looked like the cross between Al Capone and Charlie Manson kind of, you know? (laughs) He looks pretty cool with two different colored eyes right now, but he looked a little spooky then. (laughs) But what an awesome privilege it is to, to see that happen. And I know you all see recovery stories here and 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 you know, we don't just when you talked about this the last time we don't just need recovery from drugs and alcohol we just need recovery in our lives right i just you know life has a way of hurting us and life has a way of bending us out of shape and and uh we just got to get to the place where god can heal us so everybody say no fear no fear no fear Sometimes we relate that or we think we're gonna draw that no fear from the fact that we know God can make everything okay in our lives. You know, we know when we see something on the horizon that we can pray and know God can change that thing that's coming into our life. We change that thing that's in our lives. That God can remove the obstacle or the predator or the or the um, looming danger that he can remove that and we use that a lot of times because he has that power right and we've seen him do that right but we've seen him not do it too right so that's the sovereign will of God to decide whether to fix it or not fix it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whether to walk into the fiery furnace or to not walk into the fiery furnace, right? And we live in fear sometimes, not just because, you know, we live in fear Because we know he can do it. We don't doubt that. We know in our head he can do it, but we sit around wondering, but will he do it? And we fixate on an outcome of what God needs to do in order for us to be okay and to feel safe and feel secure and to feel peace. And we we focus upon that. And we fixate and we've set ourselves up to live in fear. Because every day we'll lick our finger and stick it and try to figure out which way the winds are blowing to figure out if we're going to be okay. We'll watch the circumstances and we'll watch the situations for indicators. Say, Hey, am I going which way is it going? Is it God doing it? God not going to do it. Is God doing it? Is God not going to do it? And we live like that. God says, I don't want you to live that way. Right. Is she going to be saved? Is she not going to be saved? Is she going to be sick? Is she going to be well? Is this relationship going to happen? Is that not, is, is, what's going to happen at work? What's going to happen? You know what I'm saying? Are they going to backslide? Are they going to stay in? Are they going to love God? Are they going to resent God? All these different things. And we walk through life faced with these things every day. And we live in fear. And we have stress. And we have anxiety. And we begin to want to control things. <laughs> and we know we live there. Right? I wonder if God says, I am really sorry I ever put that stuff in their lives. Because they say all the time it all belongs to them. Oh, these aren't my kids, they're God's kids, you know. Well, this ain't my church, it's God's church. This ain't my, this ain't, you know, God gave me all this. This is all God's. it was the cattle on a thousand hills. And everything, but that house and that car, it's all God's. And that job. And that, you know, we know it right here, but we don't, we don't know it right here. Right? As a matter of fact, we can't hardly enjoy it as a blessing because it becomes a curse in the fear of loss. Right? And I'm not talking about just material things. You know what I'm talking about? The things that we value in life and the, the things that, and, and whether it's our kids or our relationships or, or whatever it is. So everybody says God wants me to fe- be fearless. Today. You can leave here fearless today. So Genesis chapter 37, we read about um, Joseph who dreamed a dream. And I'm not going to read through the scriptures. I'm kind of paraphrasing, you know, verse 18 through probably about 27. 27. So he dreamed a dream, and, and, and we, know, we know the drill that his brothers and his family was going to bow down to him and that he was going to be raised to a position of power, and, and they were going to bow down to him. And they didn't have all that I figured out at the beginning. But he did know, they did know that he was going to supersede them in the hierarchy of the family. And so he started sharing that dream, and it, it came from God, but people hated him for it. His brothers and sisters, or his brothers hated him for it. His family hated him for it. And his dad didn't even really want him to talk about it but it was something that came from God. And so there was a day when they saw him walking across the field and they wanted to get rid of him and they talked about killing him and they eventually threw him in a pit and then they got him out of the pit and then they sold him to some Ishmaelites into into slavery and um, they they carried him off, went to Potiphar's house and, and God used him in Potiphar's house and then he'd been there for just a little while and was doing well And he thought, well, maybe my dream's coming to pass. Maybe life's coming together for me. And then Potiphar's wife was a hoochie and she was after him. And so she ended up bringing charges against him and um, said he was trying to do stuff. He gets arrested. He gets thrown in jail. And you know, I'm thinking, you know, he's gotta be thinking, God, why'd you even bother giving me that dream? Because years and years years. And I mean, you want to, you know, has anybody come from a dysfunctional family? You don't have to raise your hand, but right. Cause you may have some family here. I just started raising my hand around my mom about five years ago, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, just dysfunction. You want to talk about dysfunction? Dysfunction. I mean, I have heard a lot of stories, but I have yet to come across anybody that had their brothers sell them to Ishmaelites. Right. right? They sold them out to a lot of other things. But, I mean, you want to talk about dysfunction. You know, your brother's wanting to kill you, and they sell you off to some slave traders. And, and you know, getting, you start doing good at work, and then your boss's wife makes a play on you. And you're like, hey, it's all good. It's on your backing out. And you still get blamed for it. You go to jail and, you know, then like the baker and the butler don't cooperate and you end up in jail longer. And then all this stuff over all these years and and stuff he couldn't control. But there was a dream in the making all along. But did it feel like it? Did the evidence point towards it? Did, did what he could see around him, if he would have stuck his finger in the air to test the winds, do you think, oh yeah, yeah, Potiphar's wife just drug me to court. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go up for uh, seven to 10 for attempted rape. Oh yeah, things are going my way. Woo. I, this dream is about to happen right here, folks. I can feel it. <laughs> do you think he was thinking that? So I read through that and and God was dealing with me with the message to preach, and the only thing He gave me was This is the stuff that dreams are made of. This is the stuff. Oops, sorry. I'm not very spaciously aware. That's why when I talk to you sometimes, I'm like right here. Hey, brother, how you doing? That's why I run into everything. I've got the, skins, the scars on my shins to prove it. I've never had a trailer hitch on the back of my truck that I haven't broke my shins on. Working with that fear. But this is the stuff that dreams are made of. Really? Really? So I was thinking about that and and we were talking about earlier, that's all I had. I didn't even know where that came from. I just heard people say that, you know? I'm like, I don't know what that meant. And and so I did a little research on it and originally in in a different type of wording it came from a Shakespearean play. But they changed it around and they used it in a Humphrey Bogart film in 1941. Any Bogart fans in the house? Do you ever remember in the Brady Bunch where Bobby Brady walked around saying pork chops and apple shash, And they all wanted to kill him? i would never seen anything Humphrey Bogart in my entire life. But they said it was in this, that phrase, this is the stuff that dreams are made of, was in this Humphrey Bogart flick called The Maltese Falcon. So I read about it and, and looked up the little clip on it. And so in this, in this Maltese Falcon movie, they talked about how there was this bird, this falcon statue that was supposed to be worth all this money and all these jewels and whatever. I don't remember why it was so valuable, but everybody was chasing it. Everybody was chasing it because it had this great value and so he was coming to the United States on a ship or something. And, and, uh, and uh, so Humphrey Bogart was a private detective and he had a partner and I won't get it 100% right, but he had a partner and this lady that was kind of chasing this falcon covertly for greed. She was greedily trying to get this, this, this statue. Well, she hired Humphrey Bogart and his partner. Well, she was double-crossing. There's all this kind of double-crossing going on through the whole thing. And so she sent him out to follow this guy she didn't really, she wasn't really talking about this statue. whole She was double-crossing. They go out and follow this guy. She kills Humphrey Bogart's partner. And then the guy they're following gets killed and all that just short story out of a long story, all these people double-cross everybody chasing this thing of wealth and every, and these people are getting killed and Bogart's uh, partner gets killed and it was his friend. And you know, in the the middle, middle of all this stuff, Bogart falls in love with the lady that killed his partner. Man, poor bogey. That rips my heart out. And so he falls in love with her and then... The, the 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 falcons coming over, all these people die in the process, and they're all back and they're all backstabbing and, and so the, the ship comes in, the ship captains you know the, the boat catches on fire and the ship captain staggers up to to Bogey and he's been shot several times or stabbed or something. He's at the point like, here it is. Oh. <laughs> so they have the statue after all those people died and everything else. So it ends up being a fake. (laughs) Get that, you close? I mean, it's gonna be pretty quick here. It ends up being a fake. So then he finds out the gal that hired him, that he loves, he gave his heart to, she's the one that offed his partner. Man, that guy can't win. And so I'm gonna show you like a 14 second clip. Did you bring the popcorn? You gotta get into it quick because they weren't all that exciting back then. In 14 seconds of it it ain't gonna be real adrenaline rush. So after, after they find out it's fake, He calls the cops. She's trying to convince him, don't call the cops, don't call the cops. And he calls the cops on his his love. They haul her off and they've just hauled her off, put her in cuffs and hauled her off to the police station. And he's standing in the room with the Falcon and this other cop. And this is what he says. After all the drama, after all the killing, after all the disappointments, after all the betrayals, after all the hurt, this is what he says. Harry, what is it? The uh, stuff that dreams are made of,
1: huh?
0: You know what? They always make that other cop not seem real smart, right? He goes, huh?
1: Huh?
0: <laughs> hey, what's my line right here? It's huh! <laughs> what I said too. There's been many times in life when I know God has purpose for me and I know God has dreams for me and I know God has a plan for me, but when I pick up that thing that's been wrapped around with so much trauma and drama and hurt and betrayal and things not going my way, and I said, God says, this is the stuff that dreams are made of. I look at it and I say, Huh? If you're going to make it, if we're going to live a life that's not in fear, if we're going to live a life of faith, we better figure out what we're going to do with that, huh? We better come up with something that's better to say back to circumstance and back to the things that we face in life more than just, huh? You know, I, I gave my testimony like a Bigger part of my testimony, the last time that I was here, uh, I think it was in August of last year, and um, I'm going to give some little different parts of it today. But you know, I was I was raised in a dysfunctional home. I think we talked about that the last time. Just raised in a home that was just full of dysfunction and craziness and. Uh, my, my mom and my dad, they got divorced when I was about 11 or 12, which was kind of a relief. And my mom was very tolerant of my dad who acted like a jerk all the time. Very domineering, very, uh, verbally abusive, kind of push you down, make you feel small all the time. And when I was growing up, my dad didn't have much respect for marriage and, um, He would always say, well, when your mom gets to be 40, I want to trade her in on two (laughs) 20-year-olds. And you know, he would leave every once in a while, and he'd be gone for several months at a time, and he'd get an apartment somewhere, and he'd have a girlfriend, and party, and have a girlfriend. And then after a couple months, he'd just show back up at the breakfast table, and nobody ever said anything. They didn't even say, huh. Yes, I mean, he'd just show up, after the girlfriend and everything, they just sitting there eating his cereal. I'm like, okay, this is the way it's supposed to roll, you know. Exactly. And then he ended up finally moving us out of the house. And and the band moved into our farmhouse and, and drugs everywhere. You know, some of the first, my introduction to, to speed was from him. And my 16th birthday, he bought me a lifetime membership to a nightclub in town so that they'd stop carding me when I went in. So I started hanging out with him and partying, and he ended up marrying a lady that was a year older than my sister. So he pretty much did what he prophesied, except for the ratios were right, but the numbers were just a little different. You know, I just And I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail, but I'm just kind of saying it wasn't really like all that great. It wasn't. I didn't feel like it was horrible at the time, but there was a lot of stuff that just wasn't really functional. I can remember sitting at the end of the table, you know, having him watch me eat dinner, and I hated going to the dinner table. It was my least favorite thing to do was to eat around him because he would sit at the end of the table and watch me like a hawk, just watch every move I made, and he would criticize what I did eat or what I didn't eat. If any corn fell off my plate, he would say, hey, look, if you're going to eat like a pig, pick up your plate and go eat in the trough, and I'd have to go eat in the bathtub. And I can remember one, one of the times we, we had racehorses, and I don't think I told this part, and sound, I'm, I'm putting this in here because sometimes there's some of the smaller things, and, and some would consider these next things, I'm going to tell you, kind of like smaller things, but some would say, ugh. But, you know, we had racehorses at a big, giant barn with an indoor arena, and probably had 10, 10 racehorses in there. And I took care of them anyway. I was about 10 or 11 years old. I'd take care of those horses all the time. But when he was on one of his walkabouts, it was in the middle of the winter. And that barn caught on fire. And we were able to get all the horses out. um, But there was no place to keep them. You know, and it was, I mean, we used to have winters then. I mean, those were winters, folks. Cold and snow and... So there was no place to put these horses. And my mom was at the end of her ropes and I, I, I was felt responsible at like 10 or 11 years old, felt responsible for this farm. Didn't have a whole lot to work with. Wasn't giving us money or anything. And, and um, I lived way out in the country and a bus came and picked me up. But I remember every day trying to go out and take care of those horses, you know, and they're out there in that cold. And I felt so, I could just remember feeling so responsible for it. And those horses just kept getting sicker and sicker. And skinnier and skinnier. And their health was declining. And I can remember being a little kid, and I just couldn't do anything about it. And in the middle of all that, we had these rats in our barn. Without the tail, those puppies were that. They were grain-fed rats. I mean, everybody today wants to eat grass-fed rats, but we had grain-fed rats. Without the tail, them babies were about that big. Huge. So in the middle of all that, guess where the rats went? Nope. The house. That was scary, to be quite honest with you. I mean, they were scary enough in the barn. I carried a pistol with me in the barn, and I'd shoot those rats in the barn. But when they got in the house and they got real active at night, it was scary. And I would try to throw a bucket over the top of them. I chased them through the house with a ball bat. I remember stuffing towels underneath the cracks underneath the doors of our bedrooms at night trying to keep them rats from getting in our rooms. I remember sleeping in the top bunk of my bed because I thought, well, at least they'd have to climb up here to get me. Scary. That's just scary stuff, you know? I mean, when you're a kid, that's just scary stuff. So fighting through all that, you know, in the grand scheme of life, that's not a huge deal. But when you're 10 or 11, that's kind of a big deal to be dealing with, you know. And so I remember walking out the first day and seeing the first horse laying over dead. And I was like, man, I felt so defeated. I felt so discouraged. I felt like a failure that I couldn't even keep a horse alive. I couldn't keep the rats out of the house. I was trying to keep my mom and my sisters safe from the rats, and I couldn't keep the horses alive, and I felt defeated, and I felt ashamed. You know, when you've got, when, when your dad goes from being the vice president of a bank to where you have quite a bit of you got an in-ground pool and you got a racehorse farm all this other stuff and he becomes a cocaine addict and the bank that he works for repossesses the house eventually and things are falling apart and you can't have friends over because you got rats running around your house and dead horses laying around you don't want people to know that's going on you're ashamed of that i mean i was and I remember coming home, I had a dog named Lobo and it was a husky that had a white face. I remember getting off the bus one day and here come Lobo, he'd always run across the yard to come up and greet me, you know how dogs do when you get off the bus. And he came up and could greet me and he had blood all over his face because he'd been eating our dead horses. And he had invited all the neighborhood dogs over to do the same thing. So all the neighbor's dogs were going home with blood all over them. And the only thing I could think about was how am I gonna explain this when I get on the bus tomorrow, how, how, what, what am I going to say to my buddies on the bus, how their dogs ended up looking like that? You know, that may seem silly to you, but that's what I was thinking. I felt responsible for it. It created a lot of shame in my life at that time. And so things weren't that great to say the least, you know, gotten messed up a little bit in drugs and alcohol. My drug of choice became rage, you know, God, I met my wife, uh, Lisa, in a bar called Cochran's. Um, We almost got divorced because we just couldn't function in life without God in our lives. You know, I was a rageaholic and, you know, she couldn't stop drinking and lots of stuff going on. Ended up getting in church May 28th, 1989. We gave our lives to God in Denham Springs, Louisiana. Came back to Illinois. God helped us be part of um, helping the Rogers start the church in Champaign. And God just allowed us to do ministry, God just blessed us. I mean, God, God made us a team and we worked together and, and did ministry together and saw the church grow. There's like four language groups being preached there every week now. And we got to be a part of Lifeline Connect. Um, my, my wife would allow us to have addicts live with us from time to time, trying to help them. We just worked together in ministry and had two great kids and, and had the material things that are blessings and everything. It was just like life was just stinking awesome, you know? having all that stuff going on and you just wonder how so many times I've wondered, you know, we'd have the lifeline guys over and, and Drew was even saying the other day how instrumental Lisa was in his life because he, she became a mom to like every guy in program and have them over to the house and she'd say, well, I'm not going to cook a whole lot when they come over, but then she'd get everything out and she'd be cooking cobbler and everything, wouldn't she? Mothering those guys and, and doing ministry and, and so it was a year ago this month <coughs> Felt like we had the dream ministry, I mean, it's just it was happening a year ago this month. Uh, took her to Puerto Rico for our 30th wedding anniversary, and I can remember sitting where we could see the ocean and seeing the ships coming in and and like these big old iguanas walking around and stuff. It was a little weird, but it was, I guess, what happens down there. But planning two years, two and a half years to retirement, traveling, doing ministry for Lifeline. She got trained in Genesis training, all the stuff we're going to do. We get back from Puerto Rico, and she has some gallbladder problems, has some gallstones, so she has, has to have her gallbladder out. And then three days later, the doctor calls, hey, I need to talk to you about your appointment. But the next words I hear are fatal, cancer, 6% survival rate. And I didn't even go to the appointment because it was just a follow-up. My daughter went with her. And my daughter texted me and said, Hey, you need to go home. Everything's fine, but just go home because we need to talk to you. Well, when they're at a doctor's appointment, they tell you that, you know everything ain't fine. So I said, put me on speakerphone right now. So she put me on speakerphone. I remember I could tell you where I was at in the road when I heard the word fatal. And I about went off the road. Because fatal didn't fit into the dreams. Because she was raised by two alcoholics and had a rough life. I felt like we'd already been through the nightmare part. I felt like I'd already been through the nightmare part, and we're ready for the blessing part. Exactly. And kind of shorten up the story a little bit. You know, prayer and people fasting and prayer. Prayer cloths, so you all gave us a prayer cloth here we prayed over it. Multiple churches gave us prayer cloths. And we put them. My wife, she put stuff, those prayer cloths in her pajamas all over the place. And, and we had faith, believe in God for a miracle either way, believe in God for a miracle. And, and she was doing a holistic type thing where it was incredibly grueling doing the treatment. Because there was like 13 juices a day that all had to be freshly made and all this. I lived at the grocery store. I lived at the co-op and worked at the same time. It was just grueling. Stress, like unbelievable. And every day I saw her get worse. Every day. Picture of health, 49 years old. Looked like she was 35. And every day I saw her get worse. Going down to about 105 pounds. And she was a woman of faith and believed God and trusted God. And we had developed a trust in God for the future. But it's when you get in a time like that, you figure out what you really believe, you know. And she believed it and I believed everything. This was the coolest thing about the whole experience. I figured out and found out for sure that I believed absolutely everything I'd ever taught or preached. I found out I believed everything that I'd ever taught or preached in that fiery moment of five months. And she never wavered and she was very courageous and she always trusted God, but she was in a ton of pain. And she would call out to God, asking God to take away her pain. God, please, I'm your daughter. She would hang around my neck in the kitchen, holding onto my neck, crying out to God, I'm your daughter, daddy, daddy, daddy. Please take away my pain. Please take away my pain. God chose not to do it. I remember being in the emergency room. She was in a ton of pain, bent over a bed. She was bent over the bed, and she's trying to find a position because her stomach kept swelling up. She was trying to find a position where she'd be comfortable, and the pain just kept coming and coming and coming and coming. I remember sitting in a chair. You know, you'll never feel more helpless than that in your entire life. You know, and God had to just keep telling me, this is between me and her. It's not your deal, Your your deal is to keep walking with her and walk her to me. And God gave me multiple visions during that whole time that brought me a lot of comfort of what my job was. But just in a moment of pain, she never doubted God and she never distrusted God, but I'm sitting there and I'm just trying to zone out and pray and I'm like trying to remove myself from the situation a little bit because it was hurting me to be there. And in a moment, just in a moment, when she was in pain and we're praying and we're praying, and in a moment she turned and looked at me and she said, Don't you wonder why he doesn't do anything? And it's one of those moments when you don't have time to think. You're not going to find a scripture. You just better, you better have it. I didn't have to think about what to say. There was just something in me. And I just looked her square in the eye and she was looking me square in the eye and she, if I wasn't to tell the truth, she would have known And She lived with me for 30 years. She was looking me square in the eye. And she said, don't you wonder why he doesn't do anything? I said, no, I just trust him. And she looked at me and she goes, we went back to just going through it. You know, a lot of things happened during that time. But she ended up dying on September 12th. I was actually here in August. And on the, when I left here to go home it was when Drew and I started getting phone calls that the pain was getting a lot worse and she was going downhill real fast. I think four or five weeks later she died. And so there's, I'm trying to find some, a good spot. I don't have to tell you everything. I told this the other day, but amongst all of that, there was a, a dream I had one night and just not too long ago. And in this dream, all I, I, was just, I was just laying there in this dream and all I could hear in this dream was my daughter's voice because I was in a pretty low spot at this time. My daughter's voice just saying, Dad what about your dreams? And I said, Jenna, my dreams are dead. And my daughter's voice said, Dad, what about about your dreams? So here's the girl that, you know, I raised her. She'd been around me a long time. Dad, what about your dreams? I said, a little more agitated each time. Jenna, my dreams are dead. One more time. And I heard this one as I was waking up out of a sleep. Dad, what about your dreams? And as I was waking up, I heard my voice very agitated, like, can't you see what's happening here? Can't you see what's transpired? Can't you see the pain? Can't you see the loss? Can't you see the shattered dreams? Can't you see that bleeding, broken heart laying on the floor of my bedroom? Can't you see all this? And when she said, dad, what about your dreams? I was yelling out. Jenna, don't you understand? My dreams are dead. And I got up and started walking around the house. I remember I can tell you exactly where I was standing. I was walking back in my bedroom. And I steadied myself. And I reached out and I touched that door jam. And there was a voice that said, No. My dreams aren't dead (laughs) my dreams aren't dead yeah some of them are dead the thing I the way I thought it was going to happen the things we talked about transpiring the things we thought should happen all the things that I'd wet my finger and stuck in the air and said is it going to go this direction those things were dead yes but God said they're not all dead You're going to see people healed. You're going to see people recover from drug addiction. You're going to see hurting people put back together. You're going to see lives changed. And you're going to walk through life fulfilled and healthy and serving me and have a life that has full of dreams. (laughs) Then it came the phrase when I was getting ready to preach. And it said, this is the stuff. (laughs) All of it. The good stuff, the bad stuff, the hurtful stuff, the joyful stuff, all of it. This is the stuff that dreams are made of. This is the stuff... That dreams are made of. And I started reflecting back to the things that I'd been preaching for the last two years. And Drew could tell you, I'd been preaching uh, Romans 8:28 for two years, and we know, and we know, and we know, that all things work together for good, to them that love God, to them that are the called, according to His purpose. Is that right? I had been preaching some other stuff, but every into every woven into almost every message I preached for almost two years was Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know, and that's not what we think. It's not what we've heard. It's not what we've read, but it's what we know. I know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And what I'm here to say today is you better get that in your heart. You better move it from your head, 18 inches to your heart, and get it out of your Bible and get it into the fabric of who you are because you don't know what life's gonna bring your way. And that's an anchor. You better have your boat when the flood hits because you're not gonna have time to run out to Walmart and get you one. We're putting our violins away now, okay? I ain't walling around the floor of my living room anymore with a man with dead dreams. I I don't hate going home with nobody home anymore. I used to hate it. I don't hate walking down the hallway and going to the bedroom and getting in my bed anymore. Even though I used to have to take a towel to bed to soak up, soak up all the tears. I ain't living that way anymore. I don't live that way anymore because this, this, this is the stuff that dreams are made of. But in my own hands and in my own rationale and in my own thinking, it's just bad stuff and I can get an attitude of victim mentality or I can get an attitude that I've been betrayed by God or I can lose out with God or I can lose out with my church body or I can lose out with a lot of different things if I let a victim mentality get in my head. But you know what? You can't be a victim and victorious at the same time. And when I hold on to oh, I know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according not to our purpose, not to what we think ought to happen, but to his purpose. You know why I want you to get that today? It's not because I'm predicting something bad in your life. Because there's going to be, and it may not be like what I had happen to me. It could be something that's considerably different. It could be a promotion you didn't get. It could be a disappointment or somebody in the body of Christ that betrayed you or hurt you. It could be your pastor letting you down some way. It could be, you know, we're all human. It could be anything. You know, John found himself in a prison cell waiting to be beheaded. You know, you're not going to understand any, everything. I, I'm, I, you're not going to understand everything. It's never been the intention for the things God does or doesn't do to make sense to you. He never promised us that. I don't even understand how he made this place, let alone what's going on in my life. But I don't, I don't hang around. You know, Eve didn't understand why they couldn't eat out of that tree. And she, she hung around that tree, not understanding why she couldn't eat out of that tree to the point where she distrusted God's motives and believed a lie from Satan that God didn't want her to have something good. You know what? I'm not gonna hang around God's nose. God decided to not heal my wife. And you know what? That's not the way I'd have had it gone down, but I trust him. 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 I'm not going to have peace when I understand. He says I'm going to have peace despite understanding. It's a peace that passes understanding, surpasses it, and as brings more peace to my life. So this is what I'm trying to say. It take me a long time to do it too, ain't it? Fearless. Fearless. We start we're singing about God raising up an army, right? Right. We're singing about God raising up an army. There ain't an effective army on the planet that's a bunch of scaredy cats. Stressed out, filled with anxiety. What's going to happen here? What's going to happen there? Just stand with me. Do you know almost every negative coping behavior we have in our life is based on fear? Almost every coping behavior we have in our life is based on fear. I want you to be honest. If you want to be effective in the kingdom of God, raise your hand. Right? I can feel that in this place. The most dangerous soldier on the battlefield is the guy that's got nothing to lose. Uh That's true.
1: That's good. Yeah,
0: that's good. That's good. Preach it. I remember when fear was trying to grip my family, we were walking through this whole thing. Every time we, every time we went to the doctor, it was just like, oh, we're just waiting to hear a doctor say what our fate's going to be, you know. And God just directed me and said, you know, you're not supposed to live by the fear of men's words. And I got a little family meeting together. (laughs) And I said, There's too much fear in this house. You can play anytime you want. There's too much fear in this family. I know we all trust God and everything else, but I can feel it. There's too much fear in this family. And it became very obvious to me that it was the fear of loss. Fear of loss as we know of life as we know it, the fear of losing somebody, you know, that's your one flesh with, the fear of losing a mom, fear of losing grandma. The fear of the unknown of the future, all those things. And I was driving up from Southern Illinois and I saw this big cross off the interstate. And I, I, was, I had taken her to an appointment in Barnes and left her with some family because she had another appointment the next morning. I had to go back to work. This huge cross is like 70 feet tall. Big, a humongous thing down by Effingham, Illinois. We talked about this the other night, right? And when I saw that cross, I went, Yes! Because I was thinking about all this stuff and I thought, why did I just do that? Because I don't even know why I just did that. It was just one of those deals where I just saw this cross and go, yes! I'm sitting there going, why did I do that? How's that connected to fear? Because Christ gave his life and he gave it all, he took away the fear of death. You can read about how Satan uses death, the fear of death, to bring us into bondage, in Hebrews chapter two, and I think verse number fifteen. But I don't believe it's just a physical death that we fear. I think we fear dying out to ourselves, and we fear the death of dying out to where we think things ought to be, and dying out to how we think things ought to happen, and dying out on how to, how God ought to make our lives comfortable and not have loss and throw fairy dust on every one of our situations to make them go away. But we serve a God that's way more powerful than a fairy dust guy, God. We serve a God that despite, no matter what life throws at us, no matter what life throws at us, no matter what we're asked to walk through, that if we give our lives to him, And trust Him with our lives, He's powerful enough to take whatever life throws at us and make something beautiful out of it. And I don't have to fear the horizon, but as things happen, no matter how bad or ugly or nasty they are, because my life is in the hands of God, this is the stuff that dreams are made of. Yes, weeping may endure for night, but joy comes in the morning. This is the stuff that dreams are made of. This is the stuff that dreams are made of. And I pulled my kids in the living room, and I said, you know what? We don't have to fear loss. I don't know what everybody else did when they gave their lives to God, but when me and your mama walked to that altar on May 28th, 1989, we gave our lives to God. We don't have anything to lose. But because we begin to take things back, we have things we don't want to lose, and we begin to live in fear. Give it back. Give it back. Give it back. God, I'm tired of worrying about my kids. I can be a good mama and be reasonably diligent, but trust you with my kids. They're yours. They're yours. Those are his kids. No matter what happens, you're gonna be all right. But that scripture only works is if your life is in his hands. And I can't even see that kingdom of peace. Until I've been born again of the water and of the Spirit. I can't give him my life without repentance. God, I can't just give you my bad stuff. Repentance is giving him the good stuff too. I just give you, I mean, I just give it all to you. It's the dying out to myself on whatever you choose for my life. If you've not repented, if you've not been baptized in the name of Jesus today, move to that place of peace. Let that word work in your life. If you have been, if you're like a lot of the rest of us, you still got a lot of fear in your life because the devil will put scenarios in your head of things that could happen and what that loss would feel like Or what if this doesn't turn out right? Blah, blah, blah. And it puts fear in our hearts. Not because we don't know God can do it, but we don't know if he will. And God says, I'm gonna turn my power loose, not only in the world around you, but what I really wanna do is I wanna turn that power loose loose in your life for you to trust me and have peace, and know no matter what happens, this is the stuff that dreams are made of. If you want to come and pray today, I want to encourage you to come and pray. Lord, I want to trust you with every area of my life, oh God. Lord, I have trusted you, but I need to go to a level of trust in you, oh God. Lord, I need to go to a higher level, a deeper level of trust in you, O oh Lord. In your mighty name, Jesus. Lord, I've taken ownership and I'm suffering the consequences of fear as a result of that, O oh Lord. In the mighty name of Jesus. In the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, I'm not walking in peace like I want to walk in peace, O oh God. Lord, I've been trying to make sense out of hurtful things in life. God, and they just don't make sense to me. Lord, help me to release it. Help me to give it back to you, oh God. Oh Jesus, come on, somebody let go. Just let go at a different level. Don't let it just be words. Let it be a belief in your heart. The liberating power of whatever. Whatever comes my way. No matter how ugly it is, or no matter how hurtful it is, God, you can weave it into the fabric of my life to make a beautiful garment of praise for you, oh God. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God, and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, Please telephone our ministerial team at two six two nine six five five one seven seven, or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.